6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 37 through 39. Chapter 39, verse 1. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, in the tenth month, then came Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and all his army against, against Jerusalem, and they besieged it. And in the eleventh year of Zedekiah, in the fourth month, in the ninth day of the month, the city was broken up. This is the fall of Jerusalem. Until now, we've been predicting it, talking about it, worrying about it. It now happens. The ninth day of the fourth month in the eleventh year of Zedekiah. That date is extremely important in the history of Israel. It's the date that Jerusalem fell. The ninth day of the fourth month, the eleventh year of Zedekiah. We'll talk more about chronology sometime. It's really complicated. I don't want to distract us right now. Just note that, that you don't have to know the day, but recognize that that day is nailed down in the Word of God four times. We find it. Um, we find the fall of Jerusalem we chronicled four times. Chapter fifty-two of this book, which was added by, which is an appendix to the book of Jeremiah, chapter fifty-two, Second Kings twenty-five, and Second Chronicles thirty-six, and here four places the fall of Jerusalem is detailed. Very important historical event, the life of the nation Israel. Verse 3, And all the princes of the king of Babylon came in and sat in the middle gate. And here we really get into some pronunciation challenges. Here the princes of the king of Babylon came in and sat in the middle gate. Even Nergal Sherezer, Sam Garnebo, Sarsakim, Rabsaris, Nergal Sherezer. There's a similar name as we saw earlier. I'll come back to that. Rabmak with all the residue of the princes of the king of Babylon. Now, the problem with this is, is that you're not sure how many people are mentioned here, because some of these names, the Rab is a chief of, it's a title, not a name. Nergal Sherezer is both a title, but there apparently is two of them. The first one, it was Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law, and he succeeds him as uh, Negaliser, I think is the way you pronounce his name. Sarsakim was the chief of the eunuchs, and this last Nergal is a Rabmach, who's the chief of the Magas, or possibly a predecessor of the Magi, which the Persians uh, subsequently develop into a, the Zoroasterism. But uh, anyway, all the residue of the princes of, of the king of Babylon. It came to pass, verse 4, that when Zedekiah the king of Judah saw them and all the men of war, then they fled and um, went forth out of the city by night by way of the king's garden by the gate between the two walls, and they went out the way of the Arabah. In other words, they try to split. They actually get all the way to the Jordan, I believe, but they take them and they, they carry them north to Riblah. And the Chaldeans' army pursued after them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to Riblah in the land of Hamath, where he gave judgment upon him. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar had his command post at Riblah. And by the way, it's Nebuchadnezzar in some places, Nebuchadnezzar elsewhere. Uh, they're both the same guy. We're so used to Nebuchadnezzar, it's a question of transliteration of the, of the Chaldean, 
Nebuchadnezzar by some scholars is probably the more accurate of the two, but I'll say Nebuchadnezzar because I'm just used to it. So, uh, but just don't get confused with the two different guys, same guy. Now, anyway, Zedekiah was overtaken. He's before Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 6, Then the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah in Riblah before his eyes. Also the king of Babylon slew all the nobles of Judah. Now he starts from the top and works down and slaughters them. He starts with the king and his sons, then they get the princes, and they're just going to work their way down and, and knock them off. Um, but now what's interesting about Zedekiah, we, we looked at this before, but just to refresh your memory, you, want, you might want to refresh your memory of Ezekiel 12, 13. Look at Ezekiel chapter 12. Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 13, where Ezekiel predicts, My net also will I spread upon him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans. Yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. Strange prophecy by the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel writing at this time, but while a captive in Babylon, some distance away from one of the earlier uh, the sieges. Also, for your notes, you're going to notice Ezekiel 17, verses 12 through 21, but I won't get into that now. Anyway, the king of Babylon slew the sons of Zedekiah in Riblah before his eyes. Also, the king of Babylon slew all the nobles of Judah. Moreover, he put out the Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with chains to carry him to Babylon. We know from archaeology, it sounds very brutal to us, but we do find uh, in the Code of Hammurabi and elsewhere and other things that this was the style. Now, you can't blame the Babylonians. Judah has, ca has caused them nothing but grief. He has had to see lay siege to this place almost two years to bring it to their knees and to clean, clean this mess up. And if they had just subdued, bear in mind, Zedekiah was in power by Nebuchadnezzar. He was his boss. So he's a, it's a rebellion situation as far as Nebuchadnezzar is concerned. So he's had it with these turkeys. So what's often very common is to put out the eyes of a defeated king. And often the championing king would do it himself. That was part of the, you know, the zest, okay? But it's also interesting that uh, uh, the last thing that Zedekiah would ever see that he'd remember for the rest of his days would be his sons being killed by the Babylonians. But, but it, it, so to speak, as a deference to the fact that he was king, they didn't kill him. They just put out his eyes, chained him, and took him off to Babylon, and he died in Babylon. But he also killed the nobles, slew all the nobles of Judah, and, and he, they start taking charge. And the Chaldeans burned the king's house and the houses of the people with fire and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. And Nebuzaradam, the captain of the guard, carried away captive into Babylon the remnant of the people who remained in the city and those who fell away, who fell to him with the rest of the people who remained. But Nebuzaradan, verse 10, the captain of the guard, left the poor of the people who had nothing in the land of Judah and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. Now, if you're reading this casually, you may wonder, gee, what's going on here? Wait a minute. The princes, the leadership are slaughtered. Everybody else is taken captive and they're slaves now, right? For 70 years, they're going to be slaves. That's worse than the wilderness wanderings. After Egypt, they wandered in the wilderness for what, 40 years. They weren't slaves. They were sort of captive in the sense of being yoked together and so forth. You got these million people or whatever it was wandering around the desert for 40 years. This is 70 years and enforced labor. Slaves. 
But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left of the poor of the people who had nothing in the land of Judah, and he gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. Strange passage. You wonder what's going on there. Answer, let's turn to Zephaniah chapter 3, which will have the salutary effect of having you find Zephaniah. You're at, uh, you're at Jeremiah, turn right, and uh, find your way almost to the end. They always call these minor prophets. That's got nothing to do with their importance. It has to do with their size. They're smaller books. Zephaniah, he wrote just a little ahead of Jeremiah, somewhat a contemporary, but really in the days of Josiah and earlier. Okay. First chapter, first one says, uh, the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon. So this is earlier. This is contemporary with Jeremiah, but the very early days of his ministry when, Zephaniah, when uh, Jeremiah was a young, young man. But I'd like to call your attention to chapter 3, verse 12. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 12. God says to uh, Zephaniah, I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust the name of the Lord. Strange, strange prediction. Okay, a, he will afflicted and poor people, and they'll trust the name of the Lord. By the way, uh, uh, this is just a hidden little token thing, but it's being fulfilled, and Jeremiah will come back to that. But before we leave Zephaniah, you might mark verse 9 of chapter 3. It has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but as long as you're in Zephaniah, I imagine you, don't, I don't, you probably don't frequent it too frequently. So you might note verse 9. Because what you don't realize it says in the English translation is something you ought to know it says. It says, For then I will turn to the peoples a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him in one consent. The word pure language there is the English. The Hebrew implies by its grammar that the language is Hebrew. And it's a prediction. It's regarded by most scholars as a, as a prophecy that when Israel is regathered in land, they will return to pure Hebrew as a tongue, which they are doing since May 14th of 1948 in the state of Israel which they have not spoken since the days of Nebuchadnezzar. You and I don't realize that. If you're Jewish, you probably don't realize that. You learn Hebrew as a religious language. Hebrew was not spoken widely after the Babylonian captivity. They spoke Aramaic, which is near to it, but it's really a Chaldean language. And when the Babylonians were conquered by the Medes and the Persians, and then the Persians by the Greeks, they all spoke Greek. Greek was enforced. That's why they had to do the Septuagint version. 285 B.C., they commissioned 70 scholars in Alexandria to write the Hebrew scriptures in Greek because all Jews spoke Greek. They didn't speak Hebrew unless you were a rabbi, unless you were in religious training. They treated Hebrew the way Catholics used to treat Latin. It was a dead language used for religious purposes. The average Jew did not speak Hebrew. He spoke whatever the word language was, Aramaic under the Chaldeans, Greek under the Greeks, typically Greeks under the early days of Rome, etc. And of course, in subsequent, you get to the ghettos and things, it's Yiddish, that's not Hebrew. When do they speak Hebrew? For religious purposes, or since May 14th of 1948, the land of Israel. The prophecy is from Zechariah 3.9, let's, I mean, Zephaniah 3.9, let's get back to Jeremiah. It's interesting here in verse in chapter 39, verse 10, that Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left of the poor of the people who had nothing in the land of Judah and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. Interesting fulfillment of prophecy that God leaves a remnant of poor there that trusted him who have nothing. Now, it's interesting, this, this captain of the guard of the Chaldeans, do you suppose he did that so he would fulfill Old Testament prophecy? I doubt it. 
Do you think the Roman centurions at the foot of the cross did not break the bones of our Lord in order to fulfill Exodus 34, uh, 20 or whatever it was, the, the fact that the Passover lamb was not to have a bone broken? Of course not. He didn't have the training, wouldn't know anything about that. But of course, he was fulfilling prophecy. Just as the soldiers, when they divided the garments, but then cast lots for the seamless robe. Interesting how God uses the whatever instruments to fulfill his word. Interesting. Verse 11. Now Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah to Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him and look well to him and do him no harm, but do unto him even as he shall say unto thee. No surprise. Jeremiah has been prophesying for 40 years. You have to assume that Nebuchadnezzar's intelligence forces are pretty bright, reasonably well effective at their job, and they found out that there's this strange prophet among the Hebrews that has been telling them not to fight, but to give up. Now, I'm not ascribing to Nebuchadnezzar any particular spiritual insight. That comes later. That comes under Daniel's tutelage. That's when Nebuchadnezzar, in my opinion, becomes saved, as, and, has, and he writes his testimony in Daniel chapter 4. I don't think that's got anything—I I may be wrong. I don't think that has anything to do with this. I think it's just a simple administrative act. He knows that Jeremiah has been a friend to Babylon, so he, gives, he, let, he sets up the authorities that they won't harm Jeremiah. They let him do whatever he wants. It's understandable, just in, this, in terms of secular terms. Now, what makes Nebuchadnezzar such a fascinating character is that he has an spiritual experience, and he writes it as a testimony and has it orders that it be posted throughout the known world. He, the King Nebuchadnezzar writes a chapter in the Bible. It's called Daniel chapter 4. It opens and closes, I, Nebuchadnezzar, had these strange things happen to me, by which I know that the God of Daniel is indeed the God of the universe. And he, it's a testimony that causes me to ascribe a great deal of stature to Nebuchadnezzar in spiritual terms, ultimately, by the grace of God. And during the seven years that Nebuchadnezzar is mentally incapacitated, tradition has it that Daniel was his caretaker. But that's Daniel 4, for those of you who might want to chase that down. Get the tapes in. Okay. Um, so uh, do, what, do whatever he shall say to thee, in verse 13. Then So Nebuzaradan, uh, the captain of the guard, sent, and Nebuchadnezzar and a bunch of other wild guys, um, uh, all the king's princes, even they sent and took Jeremiah out of the court of the prison and committed him unto Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, that he should carry him home. So he dwelt among the people. This guy Gedaliah is an interesting character. We're going to discover that this guy Gedaliah is, uh, becomes the governor. I mean, there are the, the Hebrews taking slaves, but Nebuchadnezzar puts somebody in charge, a military governor, I guess, and that's Gedaliah. And we're going to discover in chapters 40 through 44 that Gedaliah means well, but it's not too smart. He's very pious, taking care of Jeremiah, and he means well, but he's naive that he trusts people he shouldn't, and that becomes his undoing. There's a lesson there to be, how does the Lord say, to be um, harm, uh, yeah, how does it go? Wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. Very good. That's exactly what Gedaliah ain't. It means well, but blows it. He ends up being killed as a result. So, uh, but he is, pro he is apparently the guy that saved Jeremiah's life back in chapter 26. So Gedaliah, that's, that's, that's kind of neat. Gedaliah is, a, is, is friendly towards Jeremiah. 
these guys, the princes that execute Nebuchadnezzar's instructions, um, you know, commit him, that is uh, Jeremiah, to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikim, the son of Ashaphim, that he should carry him home, and so he dwelt among the people, that is Jeremiah. And so Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, has his princes put Jeremiah under the charge, under the care. Bear in mind, Jeremiah's getting on. He's obviously in poor health. He's emaciated, whatever. He's put, in, he's put under the care, if you will, of Gedaliah. Verse 15, now the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the prison, saying, it's flashback, okay, go and speak to Ebed-Melech, the, the um, Ethiopian, that's the same guy we talked about earlier, last chapter, right? saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring my words upon the city for evil, and not for good, and they shall be accompanied in that day, excuse me, they shall be accomplished in that day um, uh, before thee. But I will deliver thee in that day, saith the Lord, and thou shalt not be given into the hand of the men of whom thou art afraid." For I will surely deliver thee, and thou shalt not fall by the sword, but thy life shall be for a prize unto thee. Why? Major insight into Ebed-Melech. Because thou hast put thy trust in me, saith the Lord. Interesting point that we didn't know from the narrative before, but here is confirmed. That Ebed-Melech, when he, remember when he, was, uh, he went to, to Zedekiah, pleading for on behalf of... Um, Jeremiah, back here in chapter 38, verses 7 on, the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs who was in the king's house, fairly senior guy to have access to the king. He's not a, he's not a lowly, lowly guy. He's a senior guy. Nebuchadnezzar subsequently kills all the senior guys, but he doesn't kill Ebed-Melech. Why? Because God's taking care of him. Ebed-Melech has the guts to stand up and free Jeremiah the prophet, right? Well, you don't, the insights you don't get here, it's implied but not expressed, is that Ebed-Melech spiritually had standing with Jeremiah. And uh, that's what God is sort of rewarding Ebed-Melech for his service to the Lord, in effect, by watching out for the Lord's servant, by extracting Jeremiah from that uh, slime pit. Tells Jeremiah to tell him that I will bring my words upon the city for evil, not for good, and they shall be accomplished in the day before thee. And de but I will deliver thee in that day, say the Lord, that thou shalt not be given into the hand of the men of whom thou art afraid, the Chaldeans. Okay. Now, Ebed-Melech is probably in bad shape both ways. He's probably in bad shape with the Judean princes because he thwarted their plan to kill Jeremiah. But he's caught between the two because he certainly isn't a friend of the Chaldeans either, the enemy. Except God says, For I will surely deliver thee, for that thou shalt not fall by the sword, and thy life shall be for a prize unto thee. In other words, I'll give you your life as a gift, which would normally be forfeit. Because thou hast put thy trust in me, saith the Lord. Praise God. Fall of Jerusalem. Heavy, heavy trip. Uh, just for a quick glimpse, we might peek ahead to Lamentations chapter appended to the book of Jeremiah is a book called Lamentations. A little short, what is it, five chapters, I think? A little five chapters, a little short book. Yeah, five chapters. A five, little five-chapter book attached to Jeremiah. But it bemoans the fall of Jerusalem. And chapter 1, verse 1, mentions an interesting poetic remark. Jeremiah said, How doth the city sit lonely that was full of people, 
How has she become a widow? She that was great among the nations, a princess among the provinces, how has she become a vassal? Strange phrase that Israel, and here is specifically the city, Jerusalem, is described as a widow. Usually a widow is one whose husband has died. Who's the husband? God. God died? No. But she's separated. And the separation is here poetically described being a widow. There are other places also that Israel is described as a widow. Where is she widowed when Jerusalem fell and she's enslaved? That's just sort of the climactic act. Why am I making a point of this? Turn to Revelation 18. Chapter 18. 17 and 18 of the book of Revelation deal with mystery Babylon. Don't confuse it with literal Babylon. But there is something that God is dealing with that is spiritually or mystically Babylon. And I won't try to unravel what it is now. That's beyond the scope of this particular inquiry. But the harlot that emerges in Revelation that has on her forehead a name written, Mystery Babylon, Mother of Harlots, and so forth, right? Chapter 18, verse 4, it says, Come out of her, my people, that ye not be not partakers of her sins, and so forth. A lot is said about Mystery Babylon. And, and I, those of you that are interested, uh, you know, you may have already studied. If not, it's a, it's a study beyond the scope of just a, a small inquiry. But for those of you that are intrigued with the book of Revelation and the identity of Mystery Babylon, I want to call your attention to verse 7 of chapter 18. Mystery Babylon makes a boast that's bizarre. Mystery Babylon says, How much she has glorified herself and lived luxuriously, so much torment and sorrow give I her, I give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen. Okay, that's no price. She's the queen of harlots. We know that. And am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. Which, of course, is wrong. She's going to see plenty of sorrow before the chapter finishes. But what a strange boast that Mystery Babylon makes, boasting that she's not a widow. Who said she was? Nobody. She's contrasting herself with somebody. Somebody who is divorced and a widow. Who is that? Israel. So whatever Mystery Babylon is, it's in contradistinction with Israel, a sense of God's chosen people. So that's just a mystical link for those of you that are, you know, mystics as I am and like to change these extraneous things. I'll turn you loose on that one. And uh, so ends chapter 39 of the book of Jeremiah. We're now going to go in, uh, we, next time we'll go into chapters, we'll continue this narrative, this history of uh, 40 for several chapters here. Jeremiah, as he uh, remains in Judah, Gedaliah is made the governor, and he, uh, he does some, he, he means well, but he is naive and gets taken advantage of. Uh, Gedaliah should treat his friends like, uh, the, the friends of today as the enemies of tomorrow. That's probably, you know, sound advice to someone. Someone who's a little more street smart might not have gotten in as much trouble as Gedaliah did. Uh, small point, uh, verse 8 of chapter 39 when the Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people with fire and broke down the walls of Jerusalem, that uh, is regarded by many as starting the um, desolations of Jerusalem, a very special time, a very special period of time. Also goes 70 years. Third siege of Nebuchadnezzar. First siege of Nebuchadnezzar terminates the nation. The servitude of the nation begins, in effect, in the first siege. It's, it goes 70 years. 70 years to the day 
under the authority of Cyrus the Persian. They're allowed to go home and rebuild the temple. The temple, not the city. They don't have political uh, autonomy, but they are allowed to return. They're freed, if you will. Israel, the nation as enslaved to Babylon, is freed when Cyrus the Persian conquers Babylon. Seventy days, uh, seventy years to the day. They still have not built the city. It's later under Artaxerxes Lion Germanus that Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king, burdened by the fact that the city of Jerusalem is still in rubble. Some roughly 40,000 people are back there trying to rebuild it, but it's pathetic. But Nehemiah goes to the king, gets the authority to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, and triggers a prophecy that becomes a very important date. It happens to be 70 years to the day from the destruction of Jerusalem and the third siege of Nebuchadnezzar. Interesting thing, the desolations of Jerusalem. We'll talk more about that one, and we'll do a little particular review of the chronology and discover some provocative coincidences. Interesting, interesting time. The times of the Gentiles have begun. The times of the Gentiles have begun, by many people's reckoning. Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled, Jesus said. Now, Jerusalem was trodden down by the Gentiles, not starting with the Romans, but much earlier. Never really had its freedom, and won't have. Till the times of the Gentiles be finished, there's one last Gentile ruler to be in charge. He's going to be a wild one. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Next time, Jeremiah 40. Several times in these last couple of chapters, we see people seeking the word of the Lord. The princes did, and then... Uh, even Zedekiah did. And seeking the word of the Lord, didn't like what they heard when they saw it or, or received it. It's easy for us to be critical. We might be very cautious about that because we're probably in the same boat. When you go through the epistle of James, or you go through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, or whatever, boy, the shoe can pinch. Do we seek the word of the Lord? And if we do, do we heed it when we get it? Are we hearers only or doers? That's one question we might ask ourselves. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.